because we're thinking, well, maybe there's a God. We're here because we believe there is a God. That any man that comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And so we're going to be talking about the greatness of God a little bit today, especially in relation to other so-called gods. But you know, there's a saying out there that uh, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. A little knowledge is a, is a dangerous thing. The phrase is actually coined by a 17th century poet named Alexander poet, po, um, Pope, who said originally that a little uh, learning is a dangerous thing. But there's some truth in that statement that a little, you know, there's a little danger in uh, a little bit of knowledge. Because not that we're against learning, not that we're against knowledge. We're a people that wants to be in God's word every week looking for the knowledge that God is trying to reveal about himself. But the problem usually lies in the fact that there's usually in new, newly acquired information, often it is incomplete or wrongly applied. This situation came out of uh, my own experience in a different ministry. A young man who had gone off to Bible college came back and explained to me some of the new things he was learning. He says, hey, did you know in the Gospel of John, the word repentance is never never mentioned? I said, you know what? I didn't know that. And I looked and he was right. And, so he, and the next thing he said, and, you know, the, the Gospel of John shows us a way to have eternal life, right? And he says, well, yeah, there are lots of verses that talk about putting faith in Jesus and, and having life. That's, that's correct. And he said, therefore... This is his, this is his therefore on this. Therefore, in order to be saved, one does not need to repent. I said, whoa, 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 time out. Time out. First of all, just because the word repentance isn't mentioned in that particular gospel, we've got three others of where the word repentance is mentioned. So that's something that needs to be taken into account, in account of also in the book of Acts, where the, the Jews at the time when they're hearing Peter's first gospel message say, what do we need to be, to, what do we need to do to be saved? And he says, repent, be baptized, and believe in the gospel. But the second thing is that the actual concept of repentance is implied in the gospel of John. That repentance means to turn from one direction to the other. And with the gospel, to turn from self-reliance and determination to put our faith and trust and follow him. The woman caught in adultery. Maybe she didn't repent per se, but when Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, he said, go and leave your life of sin. There's a turning away from her adulterous lifestyle to one of following Christ. And then Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees as he confronted them to leave their dead life of trying to follow the law to follow him. And he rebukes them in, in John chapter 5, verses uh, 39 through 40. He says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me and have life. Now, folks, that's a whole other sermon for a different time. But here's what I'm pointing out. This young man thought he knew something. He pointed out a truth in the Gospel of John. But his conclusions were wrong because Jesus came to set us free from sin. Not to believe in him and free to sin, but to be free from sin 
to follow him. The Corinthians, in the same way, have a little knowledge, but it's wrongly applied in how they're living their lives. And that's what we're going to look at today in the seventh, excuse me, the eighth chapter of his letter to the Corinthians. So if you have your Bibles, please open them up to chapter eight of First Corinthians. So the Apostle Paul says this. Now about food sacrifice to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still accustomed to idols, that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their, their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat. We are no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause him to fall. Let me pray for us, and then we'll get into God's word about this message today. So, Lord Jesus, I thank you that you came to set us free. Set us free from the bondage of sin and death. Set us free from worshiping what are false gods. And so, Lord, as we look at this passage, is somewhat wrapped in culture, somewhat wrapped in time, and yet there's a principle there for us of loving our brother, loving our sister, before we exercise our knowledge. Would you give us grace to see what you have for us today? I thank you for your word. It's active, living and breathing, sharper than any two-edged sword. I pray that it will do its surgical work in us today, bring healing and health to your body. Lord Jesus, is in your precious name I pray these things. Amen. So we've been in this series through the letter to the Corinthians. We titled it Grace in the Mess because it is messy. And we've been through chapters 5 through 7 in the last few weeks talking about holy sexuality, that is living your sexuality as unto God rather than unto our own pleasure. And uh, Paul commands that we honor God with our bodies in chapter 6, verse 20. Indeed, because we are, who are believers, the temple, the physical temple of the Holy Spirit. 
This is a church that valued knowledge. This is a church that valued wisdom. Unfortunately, they oftentimes valued it to hold it over another and to lord it over another, saying, let me tell you how much I know about Jesus. So we come on to this in chapter 8. He says, now about food sacrificed to idols. It's a new subject matter. And perhaps this seems strange to us. But we have to realize that the meat in Corinth didn't come from Hy-Vee. It didn't come from Aldi or any of the other grocery stores. The meat sometimes came from a pagan idol. In fact, a pagan temple. And sometimes the, the people wanted to eat, they would go participate in a pagan festival at a temple where food, a you know, bull, goat, whatever, was sacrificed to that deity, whoever it would be. And then part of that was burned up on an idol, and then some of it is given to the people who were there to celebrate. And that's how they would eat. And then some of it would end up in the meat market. So this is kind of what was what was going on here. And for some of these now new believers in Christ, this is the background they came out of. They're trying to remove themselves from idol worship. And so even sometimes meat is even associated with that, with that idol worship. And so they're trying to remove themselves from that. For some, just the eating of meat took them right back to the days of when they were an idol worshiper. But others, others have grown in Christ. They've grown in their knowledge. And their knowledge, they found a new freedom to exercise what they believe as their rights. But unfortunately, their freedom is having a destructive effect on others in the body. So, as Paul starts out and as he explains, love, love has to be the right framework for knowledge. Verses 1-3. through Now about... Food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know, but the man who loves God is known by God. He says, yeah, we all possess some knowledge about Jesus, don't we? And we're going to see it's going to be in relation to these, these idols, these gods. But when knowledge is just exercised for knowledge's sake, it runs amok. And as Paul says, knowledge puffs up. It's a source of pride. It can be a source of showing you how much I know. How much, you know, I, how much knowledge I have. It's a club to swing to elevate myself. And in essence, sometimes looking to degrade others. You know, in academia, there's no shortage of arrogant pride in those areas. And sometimes this even invades the area of theology and even the church. Have you ever been around that person in church who wants to show you how much they know about the Bible, about the church, about theology? Have you ever been that person? I have maybe sometimes. But that's all about me. It's not about him. But in Christ, this is not the goal of knowledge. And so he brings this call, this contrast. Knowledge puffs up. But love 
love, it builds up. In Christ, love has to be the motive for our knowledge that, that we might try and share with others. Later on in this same letter, Paul's going to talk about love, and he says, love is not proud. It is not puffed up. And so he goes on. In verse 3 says, the man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. The person who's all about showing you how much he knows or she knows does not really know what they think they know, if you will. Because they're motivated by ego, not by love of building up another. That word build up is the same word you might use for like building a house. We're trying to build up our brother and our sister in their faith. The knowledge I'm sharing has to be out of a heart to build up their faith, to strengthen their faith, their character, not trying to press impress them with how much I know or how spiritual I am or to win an argument. Is it for my benefit or is it for theirs that I'm sharing this knowledge? And Paul states in verse 3, but the man who loves God is known by God. Again, for people who value knowledge, Paul sets to set them on the right path. God is not enamored with how much we think we know about Him. He is, however, interested in how much our hearts are for Him, toward Him, and implied our hearts towards our brothers. The two greatest commandments, right? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He's interested that we love him, that he becomes our first love, that we know him and follow him by faith, that we walk with him in obedience, that we develop a relationship with him. Unfortunately, that's limited on this side of heaven, right? When he comes, we will know him as we are fully known. We'll see him face to face. But more importantly is that we are known by God. That he knows us as his children. That he knows us as his bride. As his reckoned people to a holy God. It's more important to be known by God. The tragedy is to have somebody who has all sorts of head knowledge about God and yet does not really know him. This is part of the error that Paul's trying to head off here. But Paul is also pointing out there is an objective, an objective part of knowledge to be had about God. And listen to this. And that is that oneness is the right framework for the knowledge of God. Look at verses 4 through 6. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we're back to this subject again. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world. And that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. After Paul's little detour about the shortcomings of knowledge, he's back to this subject matter of food sacrifice to idols. And there's a subjective side. Because people out there do worship different gods. 
Verse 5, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, from a pure sociological standpoint, in Corinth especially, in the Gentile worlds, there were many gods to be worshipped. The god of the ocean. The god of fertility. The god who's the head god, Zeus. Whatever. All believed to have some power, some influence over this earth. But the truth of the matter is they were carved or cast or crafted. But somehow these people were worshipping them thinking, you know, if I sacrifice to this god or goddess, they're going to affect my life in a good way. It was their belief system, and this is how many, what many believed before they came to Christ. But Jesus came not as just one of the many gods, but the God who put on flesh and dwelt among us. And so, on the other side, there is an objective side. As he says, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. And that was the point of those who are presenting a case for knowledge, if you will. Look, there's only one God. All these idols that we're worshiping, they're nothing. And Paul agrees with them. He agrees with them. You're right. They may look pretty, but they have no power. The Old Testament points to this. Isaiah chapter 44, 6 through 11, and I, I'm not going to read all the, I'm not going to read up to chapter, to verse 20, because that's where it gets more interesting. But he says this. This is what the Lord says. Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I am the first, and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let them foretell what will come. They can't. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. I did not proclaim this and foretell it long ago. You are my witnesses, and there is no God besides me. No, there is no rock. I know not one. All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would come and speak for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. And who shapes a god and casts an idol? which can profit nothing, people do it. who do that will be put to shame. Such craftsmen are only human beings. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and shame. The message is clear. These are gods made by men. Nietzsche said offhandedly, God created man in his image, and the man turned around and returned the favor. Trying to make God in your own image, how whatever you think how he should be like. There is no other God. All these other gods are creations of men. Paul's not only affirming that there is one God, but he's also, listen to me, he's also affirming the oneness of God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son. Look at verse 6. Talking about the Father. Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came. So He's the Creator, separate from creation. You can see His glory in creation, 
but he's not part of the creation. And for whom we live, literally, we are unto him. Yes, we live for him, but he is indeed the beginning and the end, just as we were singing earlier, and how great is our God. And then in relation to Jesus Christ the Son, he continues on, and there is but one Lord, Christ Jesus. And by the way, in the Old Testament, the one who is called Lord is Yahweh. We translate it as Lord, but the word is actually Yahweh. He is the Lord. And this is, I'm just going to give you a, a sample. Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord, that is Yahweh, your God, is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. When we talk about who the Lord is in the Old Testament, it is Yahweh, the living God. There's only one Lord, Jesus. He indeed is one with the Father, Yahweh. And through him, he continues on, all things came. The Father creates through the Son. Paul will bring forth this truth in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, for talking about Jesus, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So he continues on at the end of, Paul continues back to our, our passage here. At verse 6. And through him, talking about Jesus, we live. Literally, we through him. Our very existence holds together. As Paul would say again in, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, in him all things hold together. There's a unity in the Godhead. Jesus would say in his earthly ministry, I and the Father are one. There is a mystery to that unity. But Jesus is saying, look, when you see me, you see the Father. Paul is affirming and confirming that there is only one God. That the idols are not really God. They're mere lifeless statues. But with so many coming out of this idolatrous background, not all of this had fully absorbed this knowledge per se. And exercising knowledge can hurt others. Verse 7. Not everyone who possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their consciences are weak, it is defiled. Verse 8. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat. We are no better if we do. So first of all, Paul saying, look, the issue is not food. It's not what you eat or don't eat. There's no bene spiritual benefit to either. But in this case, some of these new believers may have understood in their head that an idol is nothing. And they didn't want to have anything to do with things sacrificed to idols because it was too close to their idolatrous background. It took them back. It triggered a sensory thing. Have you ever experienced something where you tasted something smelled something, seen something, and it, it takes you back somewhere. This is what's going on with them. Even later on in this service, we're going to have a sensory experience. We're going to take some bread, remembering that Jesus died for us. 
We're going to drink some grape juice, remembering that Jesus shed his blood. That is a sensory thing where God is reminding us that he sent his son for us. This is what's happening in these guys' life, only in a, a bad way. They're being taken back to their idolatry. And so then Paul goes into what, what I call a what-if scenario. Verse 9, he gives the principle, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Verse 10, For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. A believer exercising what he believes or is his knowledge or his right to just eat this food because it's not these, you know, I'm in this, I'm in this idol's temple, but it's no really, no God at all. So I'm just gonna I'm gonna eat this. But another brother coming by, or sister coming by, who's struggling with this, sees you doing that, and they go, "Well, well, maybe maybe I should do this. Maybe this is okay to eat food that takes them back, and they become emboldened. Literally, built up is the word there. Built up in the wrong direction." As one believer exercises their knowledge, it causes another to violate their own, their own sense of right and wrong. And unfortunately, what it causes them to do is to not act in faith. To not act in a way they believe they have freedom to act. And they commit idolatry. And we're going to find out a little bit later that Paul doesn't want them, any of the Christians involved in this, just because it's entering into worship of demons, but that's for chapter 10, we'll get there. But because of one's knowledge, one insists on exercising their rights, it's not anchored in love, one for whom Christ died to set free from idolatry and bondage, their faith is harmed. They're destroyed, Paul says, and they're caused to stumble. And here's the principle here. To sin against one part of the body is to sin against Christ himself. Verse 12, when you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Jesus in his own earthly ministry, talking about causing people to stumble in their faith, says in Matthew 18, 6, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. See, the tragedy here, all in the name of knowledge, all in, the, all in the name of exercising my rights, I'm not loving my brother or my sister, and I'm causing them to stumble. And so Paul brings this all to a conclusion in verse 13. He says, Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or my sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. This is not Paul's vow to become a vegan or a vegetarian. It's Paul saying, look, I'm not going to exercise my freedom, even though I ultimately know it's okay for me to do this, if it's going to injure the faith of another in Christ. 
I'm going to love my brother. I'm going to love my sister. So this is kind of an interesting thing, right? How do we apply this today? Because we don't have temples in Rochester where people are sacrificing to idols and we're not getting our meat from you know, the temple of Zeus or anything of that nature. But I think, again, it's when I apply what I know, I have to ask the question, am I harming another? And oftentimes I think it has to do with our freedoms. One may feel like they have the freedom to drink alcohol. When they drink, they don't get drunk. They do it in moderation. God has given it. It's, it's, it's a freedom I have. There's no, there's no verse that says I should not drink alcohol unless I'm a Nazarite or a priest of the Holy Temple. And none of us are those. However, we also know that alcohol is a huge stumbling block for many people. They become addicted to it, they, they stumble, and they get entrapped by it. It's one of the reasons why we support a ministry called Minnesota Teen Challenge. People are addicted to that. If I exercise that freedom with somebody I know who, stumble, who struggles with that, I'm not loving them. I'm not loving them. And it can apply in the areas of entertainment, you may feel like you have the freedom to watch a rated R movie and some of the things in the language that comes across, and, and I'm not going to judge that. But for another, that causes them to stumble. You have to be wise with that. And it might be even something like music. One of my seminary professors talked about when he was in the dorms at Moody Bible Institute. He and his buddies were, were playing Christian rock music. And there was an older student in those dorms. And he kept complaining about the racket they were making. How this is too noisy. And they were just saying, yeah, you're just an old buddy daddy. But you know what it ultimately came down to? As that this man came out of a lifestyle of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And in hearing that music, even though the words and lyrics might have been God-exalting, it just took him back to those days. And so those brothers, out of consideration for that brother who stumbled decided not to play that music so loud or not play it when he came by because it caused him to stumble. In our knowledge about our freedom in Christ, we have to ask the question, is it harming another? Am I operating in love or am I operating in my own rights? That's the heart of Jesus. Because he came and died for us. To set us free from these things. And that's the heart he wants us to have. Let me pray for us. Again, Lord Jesus, this is a word that is somehow trapped in culture and in the past. And yet it's very, it's very pertinent to us today. Would you give us grace to operate in our faith and in our knowledge of you with a loving heart towards our brothers, towards our sisters. That seeks their interests, not just our own. And that would not cause them to stumble in their faith in following you. So give us a heart of love, Lord, for your people, because you loved us and died for us. Lord Jesus, it's in your name I pray these things. Amen.